Well, uh, first of all, Francis is a Jesuit. The first time in history we have a Jesuit Pope. And remember that Jesuit order was uh, founded by Ignatius of Loyola as a way to counter uh, and to fight against the spreading of the Protestant Reformation. Now, he's not a wild Jesuit. He's a smiling Jesuit, but still, the Jesuit DNA, anti-Protestant DNA, uh, is still there. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, it is not too long, and and I'm sure uh, as listeners, you've had this experience, it's not too long until you have uh, maybe an uncomfortable conversation uh, with someone who is a Roman Catholic. I say uncomfortable because if you're not prepared for that conversation, it can it can catch you off guard. You may or may not know how to respond. Uh, sometimes uh, conversations with Roman Catholics, uh, they have some uh, very robust uh, theological arguments about Mary, about the papacy, about scripture and tradition and on and on and on. And if we are not prepared as Christians, uh, specifically as Protestants, then uh, it can be difficult, uncomfortable, maybe even awkward at times to to know how to respond uh, to your Roman Catholic friend, uh, whether it's um, whether it's an evangelistic encounter or maybe someone that uh, someone that you want to enter into deeper theological conversations with raises the question of, you know, how do we as Protestants, as evangelical Christians, uh, tracing our heritage back to the Reformation, for example, how do we respond uh, to to the doctrines that Roman Catholics hold dear? Uh, how, what are some of our differences? And how do we also engage them in a way that takes them back to Scripture itself, to the authority of the Bible? Well, these are all questions that uh, really demand that we have someone who's from Rome, uh, someone who is not Roman Catholic, but very familiar with Roman Catholic theology. It's for that reason that I am delighted to have with us Leonardo de Chirico, who is a pastor in Rome, Italy, uh, right there in the center of everything. Uh, You may know Leonardo from some of his publications uh, I, I two books that uh, I think if you haven't read them, you will enjoy them. They're two little books, but very uh, full of theology. His book, A Christian's Pocket Guide to the Papacy, and then his more recent book, A, A Christian's Pocket Guide to Mary. Of course, he's written some other uh, more academic books as well. You can read, for example, his uh, PhD dissertation, which is published under the title Evangelical Theological Perspectives on Post-Vatican II Roman Catholicism. Uh, that, that would be uh, an excellent read in which Leonardo uh, demonstrates that uh, we have to look at Roman Catholicism as a whole, not just in its parts, to understand everything from nature to grace to who Christ is to ecclesiology. Uh, a very robust argument there. He is also involved with the and I, I shouldn't just say involved. He's a, he's a leader of the Rome Scholars Network, and the uh, ref, uh, the Reformanda Initiative. Uh, and uh, these ministries uh, lately have been picking up some traction and uh, creating good discussion, healthy discussion, both in the states and in Rome. Well, I could go on and talk about Leonardo, but uh, Leonardo, thank you for uh, joining me on the Credo Podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's a great privilege to be talking to you and with our to our listeners. 
Well, there's so much we could talk about, isn't there? I mean, when we yeah. address a, a topic like Roman Catholicism, we could go on for maybe five or ten podcasts, I suppose. That's uh, right. But time's limited, so I think uh, we should focus on the papacy and Mary. I think those are—there's more, obviously, but those are two subjects that I think Protestants, evangelicals, sometimes struggle to not only to engage Catholic, Roman Catholics on, but they also struggle to understand maybe what they themselves believe about Mary or what they believe about the papacy. Um, let's just begin with the papacy, for example. Uh, as Protestants, we think of someone like John Calvin and his Institutes of the Christian Religion, where he he's not the first one to do this, but he uh, very clearly articulates uh, a Christology through the threefold office of Christ, uh, Christ as our uh, prophet, as our priest, and as our king. But when we uh, look at the Roman Catholic Church today and yesterday, uh, we may see something different, uh, that this office is not just applied to Christ, but it also is applied to the Pope. And uh, as, as a single person, a single entity in his church office, maybe you could get us started and just begin with describing how does a Roman Catholic view the Pope, and how does this threefold office, uh, how is it applied in a Roman Catholic context? Yeah, that's a good uh, point to start with. Uh, <clears throat> the Pope is the um, guarantor, guarantee of the unity of the Church, and so for a Catholic believer, whenever he or she thinks of the Pope, she thinks of the unity of the church and the Catholicity of the church, the fact that the church is global under the leadership of uh, the Pope. And without a Pope, according to Catholic theology, there is, not, uh, there is not a church. And therefore, we're not talking about some peripheral issues. We're talking about some essential uh, features in the uh, self-understanding of uh, what the Catholic Church is and how it can be uh, looked at. Uh, there, is a, there is a sense in which the threefold office of Christ as a prophet, priest, and uh, uh, king is uh, significantly uh, passed on the vicar of Christ. One of the titles that popes have uh, is that of a vicar, someone uh, taking the place of someone representing, uh, someone acting on behalf of. And there is this idea uh, that the Pope, in significant ways, is the one who actually performs the priestly, kingly, royal, and prophetic uh, offices of Christ in the way in which he speaks authoritatively and uh, um, from the time of the uh, promulgation of the dogma of the pap papal infallibility, the infallibility of the Pope, 1870, he can speak, he can speak uh, prophetically in an infallible way when he speaks ex cathedra. On certain occasions, uh, he is given the gift of infallibility. As Christ is infallible, so there is a real sense in which the Pope, who is the vicar of Christ, can speak infallibly. As a priest, as a high priest representing the priestly role of Christ, the Pope and by extension the uh, priests, <clears throat> according to the Catholic understanding, they transmit, they channel, they administer God's grace in a significant real way having been entrusted with the uh, um, priestly role of representing and transmitting uh, the grace of God. And uh, as far as the royal uh, office of Christ is concerned, uh, and of course the Pope is also a head of state, is a king, is a monarch, is one who holds not only the spiritual uh, authority over the church, but uh, because of the complex history of the Vatican, he's also a real king. And when he visits 
another country, he does so not so much as a church leader, but as a political leader. So the royal uh, office of Christ also takes political overtones in the way in which uh, popes uh, perform it. So there is a sense in which uh, the three offices of Christ, they do um, continue in embodied form and they are encapsulated, they are embodied in the person and office of the Pope. Uh, and that theologically then, if we can go even further than that, uh, uh, in the background of this view of the uh, offices of, of the Pope, there is the view whereby in significant ways the incarnation of Christ continues in the institutional structures of the church. And so what Christ did when he was incarnate, he continues to do in his present day um, institutionalized embodiment, that is the church, the hierarchical Roman Catholic Church, whose head is the Pope, the Vicar of Christ. So that's the rough argument that uh, is put before us in presenting the claims and the prerogatives of the Pope. Now, many have had this experience uh, as they're engaging a Roman Catholic um, brother or sister, maybe uh, in in some type of uh, workplace setting or perhaps in um, maybe online dialogues, as they're engaging issues like the papacy, usually a Roman Catholic uh, articulating exactly what you just said, usually they will then go to a passage like Matthew sixteen eighteen, in which Jesus uh, says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And on the basis of this text, and maybe some others, but this one in particular, they will then argue that the Pope has the right to act in those ways. The Pope has the right to claim the, this, this threefold office because there is some type of uh, papal succession that takes place. And we see it beginning with Peter and then handed down uh, to the popes that, that come thereafter. How, how do you, maybe Leonardo, you could uh, respond to that type of argument for a minute and give us, uh, as, as Protestants, uh, maybe, maybe an argument that would help us know how to uh, interpret Matthew 16, 18 properly, but then also respond to this, this argument of uh, a type of papal succession. Well, uh yeah, the, the reading of Matthew 16 in, in ways that would support the papal office as we now know it are rather retrospective uh, types of reading, trying to read into the text what uh, was developed outside of those texts. I mean, if we look at the, uh, the passage of Matthew 16, uh, there is no reference to succession there. There is no reference to um, uh, the fact that uh, Peter is given a unique role in having ultimate authority and responsibility in the church. And uh, uh, there is no mentioning of a chain of successors uh, holding the same office. But to start with, uh, the, the rock, the Peter, the, uh, the rock that Jesus is referring to is not so much the person of Peter as the rock that uh, the Old Testament speaks about and even uh, the New Testament, even Peter himself in his first letter when he talks about the foundational stone, the capstone of the church. And... Uh, that is Christ, that is the profession of Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the foundational stone upon which the church will be built. As for Peter, in his letter, when he, he writes to his fellow elders, he encourages them uh, as fellow elders, so not placing himself above them, uh, to, be, to pursue the virtues of uh, Christian humility and contentment, not to pursue 
a the desire to uh, build up a kind of empire. My my uh, thesis on the papacy is that the papacy is uh, developed more dependent depending on the uh, resemblance of uh, imperial ancient Roman structures uh, uh, that were given uh, Christianized names and were given a Christian uh, Christian uh, support or kind of argument trying to support it. But if we look at the structures of the Roman Empire with the emperor at the top of the structure, the senators helping the, the, the emperor to rule the empire, the free men, and then the slaves, and we compare this basic structure with the uh, hierarchical, top-down, pyramidical structure needing a emperor, uh, a figure like an emperor, and taking the place or, or being presented as the pope, being helped by a group of uh, uh, cardinals or dignitaries around the pope, and followed by a larger class of priests who then rule over a large mass of lay, lay, uh, lay people, ordinary people. This is more the structure of the Roman Empire translated into a Christianized form. Then what took place was the attempt to look back uh, retrospectively into the scriptures and see how this structure could be uh, understood or supported in a way that would gain some biblical um, support or uh, argumentation. But as we read the scriptures unfolding the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, and then we compare the structure of the papacy as it developed over times, there is a radical uh, uh, ditch, there is, a, there is a chasm that cannot be explained in, simply, uh, in simple de developmental terms, as if this doctrine and practice developed over time uh, in a way that the seed then became a tree. There is something that was added uh, that made it possible for the papacy to become what it is. And that addition was not a biblical argument, but rather the absorption of Roman political social structures into the structures of the church that were then given a kind of theological rationale and support, but as an afterthought, not as a found biblical foundation. That's so key, isn't it? It's an afterthought, not as a biblical foundation, contrary to, to what they might claim. Uh, that's so important because it takes us back to really the essence of the debates during the 16th century in which reformers like Luther or Calvin were argue, arguing this, this very case, that, uh, that, that the foundation here is not Scripture, but, but rather it's a, a type of uh, later development. And, of course, that didn't sit well with uh, some of their Roman Catholic counterparts, but um, the, the argument itself goes back to, well, how do we interpret Scripture and what is Scripture yeah. to begin with? Uh, yeah. and of course, when we're talking about all of this, we, naturally our minds go back to the Reformation with someone like Martin Luther. Uh, we may think, for example, uh, the, it, we, there is some development at first in Luther's uh, early thinking where, uh, you know, you, you think of the years 1516, 1517, he's, he's uh, trying to um, persuade the Pope. Maybe he's a bit naive, yeah. I don't know, uh, but uh, nevertheless, he's, he's uh, pleading or, or um, even appealing to the Pope. And, you know, surely if the Pope understood, he would change this. And, but uh, yeah. it doesn't take long, of course, until Luther then turns to say the Pope's the Antichrist. Uh, this yeah. is uh, one of Luther's um, most common uh, accusations, and uh, it's one you can see throughout his writings, whether it's his sermons, some of his, some of his uh, theological treatises um, or whatnot. Uh, Luther's going to 
um, attack, attack the papacy in, in this way, which is maybe one of the strongest claims, maybe the strongest claim one could make. Now, yeah. maybe you could address this for a minute. Uh, first, what, what does Luther mean when he's calling the Pope the, the Antichrist? What does Antichrist mean? And maybe more relevant for today, is it appropriate for us today uh, to, to think of the Pope or the papacy in Antichrist terminology or not? Well, uh, uh, you well know, Matt, that uh, uh, Luther's thought was uh, um, uh, crossed by an apocalyptic uh, dimension. And mm. as he uh, grew older, that apocalyptic, uh, let's say, pessimism or expectations would uh, uh, grow. And uh, seeing the Pope not and, and the Pope and the church he was representing, not responding to the uh, needs for a reformation, uh, he became uh, more and more convinced that uh, uh, the Pope was actually the Antichrist. But even less apocalyptic uh, theologians like John Calvin and uh, other reformers, uh, first and second generation reformers, uh, that label attached not so much to individual popes, but to the office of the papacy uh, would uh, uh, stay in Reformation thought. And even as far as uh, many of the Puritans were concerned, certainly uh, Francis Turretin uh, was one of those scholastic reform theologians who would argue strongly uh, uh, the same, the same uh, thesis, and this has become a standard Protestant view, uh, which uh, lasted until perhaps uh, a preacher like uh, Spurgeon, who often calls uh, the Pope uh, the Antichrist. I think that uh, 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 there is an historical argument that this has been the classical. Uh, Protestant view up to maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, not so much attached to individual popes, but uh, to the institution, to the, the institution where that claims to represent Christ, that claims to be the vicar of Christ, that claims to be the representative of Christ. And there is a sense in which the Antichrist will do that. Uh, will be a figure that would claim for himself the prerogatives of Christ. Now, uh, I, I, th this is what I think <laughs> the Bible says when it comes to presenting the Antichrist. Uh, whether or not this is the papacy, the institution of the papacy, uh, what can I say? I, I don't know. What can I say is that the papacy, although in modern day, uh, in its modern day forms, from John Paul II, from John the Twenty Third to John Paul II and Pope Benedict and Francis, many of the imperial features of the papacy have been uh, diminished or put on the margins of the self-understanding and the practice of the papacy. But some of the claims are still there. Uh, very important prerogatives attached to the papacy are still there. Vicar of Christ, uh, absolute monarch, uh, leader of the whole church and the church representing the whole of humanity. So there are some uh, issues. I'm, I'm not sure whether or not the Antichrist is the papacy or the, or the Pope, but there are certain features attached to the institution and the office of the papacy that are not far from being uh, uh, from resembling antichrist features. Mm. That's very helpful, and it reminds us that when we are uh, addressing antichrist issues, it, it is complex uh, and. I like how you put it there at the end that um, whether or not the papacy, well, th that could be up for debate, but but whether there are antichrist characteristics or features, uh, that certainly seems to be present because 
when we even think about what an antichrist is, it's someone who is is a, a type of uh, counterfeit, claiming to yeah. the, the claims of Christ, but but nevertheless doing so illegitimately. Um, yes. Now, when we talk about the papacy today, though, uh, we naturally think of someone like Francis um, or or some of those popes who came before him. Francis is an interesting figure, and he has received loads of media attention. Um, for some, he is the hope of a, a new type of Roman Catholicism. For others, he is um, a, a target of scorn and criticism, sometimes even by Roman Catholics. Yeah. Uh, and then out, even outside of Roman Catholicism itself, you have Protestants, some Protestants seen, being sympathetic to, to Francis, others being critical to Francis. I, I like what you said at the beginning about how the Pope sees that threefold office uh, as an important, uh, a very important aspect of his role, because for, with someone like Francis, for example, mm. it's not just that he's pontificating on theological matters. In fact, he may do that less than some popes before him, uh, but right. it's that he's going even into political issues, social justice issues, um, and ha has an enormous influence even in other countries. What do we make of, of someone like, like Francis? Is he, uh, how is he similar and different to the popes who came before him? Uh, what would be some of your own critique as a Protestant of Francis himself? Well, uh, first of all, Francis is a Jesuit. The first time in history we have a Jesuit pope, and remember that Jesuit order was uh, founded by Ignatius of Loyola as a way to counter uh, and to fight against the spreading of the Protestant Reformation. Now, he is not a wild Jesuit. He is a smiling Jesuit, but still, <laughs> the Jesuit DNA, anti-Protestant DNA, uh, is still there. Uh, is Latin American. For, for the first time, we have a Latin American Pope uh, bringing with it the Latin American charming, relational, easygoing uh, way of doing things, away from the formality of the institution, more interested in developing uh, personal contacts and uh, relationship. Uh, he is the first pope who did not participate at the Second Vatican Council, although he was born, he was a, 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 a young adult, but did not take part. And yet is the one who is perhaps most implementing some of the features of Vatican II, especially as far as the Catholicity, the call to recover the full Catholicity of the Roman Catholic Church. And that explains the fact that he is willing not so much to affirm the Roman elements of Roman Catholicism, hierarchy, the sacraments, liturgy, uh, the catechism, but is very much into the promotion of the Catholic aspects of Roman Catholicism, the embracement of all religions, the embracement of secular people, the embracement of different uh, kind of people, calling all people brothers and sisters and asking, uh, for instance, Muslims to pray for him, mm. uh, indicating that he thinks that Muslims, uh, as they pray Allah, they pray to a God and, and they pray to God and God can listen to their prayers in order uh, for him to be prayed for, and uh, is not very much interested in theological uh, reflection and work, uh, if it were for himself. He, say, he often says that he would, you know, take the theologians up in an island and let them there discuss the theological issues while, you know, the church moves on in trying to build bridges with all kinds of people around her. Uh, so he is, not, he is not theologically trained in the sense that he's not a scholar 
and uh, perhaps for the first time after having, having had two scholars like John Paul II, who was a moral philosopher, uh, and of course, Pope Ratzinger, who is, has been one of the major towering uh, theological figures in post-Vatican II Roman Catholicism, we now have a Pope who has never completed a significant theological degree. He has not earned a doctorate in theology. And, uh, and coming from Latin America, also having developed a certain uh, idiosyncr uh, idiosyncrasy towards academic theology. And uh, therefore, in his teaching, in his um, language, in his uh, uh, talks, he uh, is not is not following precise ways of theologizing, but is rather speaking with figurative language, with metaphorical images and pictures, uh, and this causes uh, some tensions even within the Catholic Church, as you said. So we are we have we are dealing with a different kind of pope than the two uh, major you know, previous uh, popes who have come before him. And perhaps even the Catholic Church is not prepared to come to terms with it. And uh, um, I think that basically is trying to implement the, the Catholicity that the Second Vatican Council called the Church to uh, promote by way of extending the borders, by way of opening up doors, by way of maybe downplaying the identity markers of the Catholic Church, the traditional identity markers, in order to become more inclusive, in order to become more Catholic, more global, and in order to implement what is the perhaps the main uh, theological insight of Vatican II, that is the definition of the church as a sacrament, the sacrament of unity between God and mankind. The sacrament is a sign and instrument, according to the definition of Lumen Gentium, the uh, constitution on the church of Vatican II. Uh, the church being a sacrament of unity means that the church is not some confined to the faithful or to the believers or to those who are juridically part of the church. But the church as a sacrament of unity means that the church needs to promote the unity of mankind, even beyond confessional borders, beyond juridical borders, and extending these borders as to include the whole of humanity. And this is, I think, the agenda that, or the theological vision, let's say, the theological vision that drives the attempts made by Pope Francis to go to the Muslim world, to go to the secular people, and practically saying, we're brothers, we're sisters, we're we are together, let's walk together, we are, we pray the same, to the same God, we are children of God, no one is excluded. That's the basic uh, vision that the Pope is trying to implement. And I, I think that it, it goes back to Vatican II, at least that significant part of Vatican II, whereby the Church is no longer defined uh, as a perfect society, as you know the um, accomplished body of Christ, but is rather pictured as a sacrament a sign, so a visible reality, as well as an instrument, a tool towards increasing its Catholicity, towards the implementation and the increase of its global embracement. We've been talking to Leonardo de Chirico about uh, the papacy, but let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. 
Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. We are back from our break and ready to talk to Leonardo uh, about not only the papacy, but how Roman Catholics understand Mary. Now, Leonardo, maybe Francis is a great point of transition here uh, from the papacy to to Mary in particular. Uh, I, I think what you just said is, I, I hope our listeners uh, understood this because it's so important in understanding how Francis uh, is both uh, pulling from something like Vatican II with this very inclusive uh, language, and at, the, and at the same time, in many ways, uh, in, he is in discontinuity with uh, other shades of Roman Catholicism or or or. Yeah. that which came before Vatican II, um, yeah. which which explains, you know, your explanation there, Leonardo, it goes a long way to, to helping us understand why uh, sometimes it's peculiar as, as a Protestant, you look on and you see even Roman Catholics uh, bickering between each other as to sure, sure. Uh, over someone like Francis. Um, now, if as we transition from someone like Francis and the papacy to, to Mary and how Roman Catholics view Mary, uh, here too, as we saw with the papacy, here too, there is uh, quite a history. Uh, you think, for example... Uh, well, just recently, where uh, Francis uh, highly elevates Mary uh, in in one of his prayers, uh, hailing her as as the the queen, the the blessed virgin, um, the the immaculate one who's who's from heaven itself. Um, uh, this raises, of course, an old uh, and ongoing debate between Protestants and Roman Catholics as to what. The role of Mary is or isn't uh, uh, not just in Scripture, but for Roman Catholics, they move uh, into to other literature as well to defend their their understanding of Mary. Uh, there, there's so many different ways Roman Catholics describe Mary as as the Virgin, the Holy Virgin. Uh, they will talk about the Immaculate Conception, the the bodily assumption. Uh, they will talk about Mary as the mother of the church. They, they also talk about Mary, especially in regards to Christology and soteriology, as uh, as the mediator. Uh, and of course, this isn't new to to our own day. This it goes back to even the 16th century. We saw. Uh, we, we see this with Luther and uh, some some of the ways that he responds and reacts to Mary as a mediator. Now, maybe you can clarify for us, uh, why is it that Roman Catholics uh, apply these titles to Mary? And uh, maybe you could just uh, tease out what these titles mean and why for Roman Catholics, uh, it, it really changes their conception of uh, Christology and soteriology. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they all the, these Marian titles they go back to uh, a Christological root, in the sense that they extend to Mary some uh, prerogatives that are ascribed to Christ, and uh, the the link between Christ and Mary is the link between the Son and the Mother. And there is a kind of syllogism uh, working in Catholic Mariology in the sense that as a title is given to the son, it is fitting that it can be given to the mother also. And so that uh, explains the fact that if the son is king, the mother is queen. If the son is uh, um, advocate or lawyer or representative. Representative, the uh, Mary is advocate. Uh, if the son is help a helper, uh, 
the uh, mother is auxiliatrix, helper, is uh, also helping. Uh, if uh, the son is the intercessor, uh, the mother is also interceding. So th this is this organic uh, relationship between the son and the mother that actually breaks away the uniqueness of the incarnation and the uniqueness of the person of the son and his prerogatives as the God-man uh, incarnate. There is a sense in which uh, the prerogatives of Christ are extended to Mary uh, in the Roman Catholic intention not to break the uniqueness of the son, but practically extending them to the mother. And uh, uh, if this uh, syllogism works, and as it has been working across the centuries, uh, everything that can be ascribed to Christ, that can be predicated uh, to Christ or of Christ, can be also predicated of or to uh, the, the mother. Attached to that, there is also a very deep uh, dimension of Mary being attached to the figure of the mother. The mother as a very important emotional, sentimental uh, um, um, weight in, 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 in our lives. And having Mary being presented as the mother, this is a very, uh, this is a very powerful argument that Pope Francis always uses in his homilies and speeches. Mary is the mother and we all need a mother. We all need a loving mother. We all need a mother who will embrace us. And Mary is that mother. Now, that touches very deep chords in people's lives that goes beyond the cognitive, informative, theological level and touches on uh, the heart, the feelings, the, the longings of, uh, of us all. And so I, in my experience in studying Mariology and in discussing it and talking about it, I often come to the point where the argument that is put forward is no longer, strictly speaking, cognitive, exegetical, theological, mm. but rather it has a added dimension touching on uh, deep feelings. Mm. And when you are dealing with deep feelings, uh, you are, you know, you have to be careful that uh, it's not only an exegetical uh, issue or a theological issue per se, it becomes a much wider. And that's why people can also become uh, offended or um, by the fact that Protestants do not show that kind of affection to Mary because it is seen as if we are lacking love, we are lacking respect for the mother. And, uh, uh, and this is, you know, needs to be taken into account. And that goes in, uh, in all kinds of directions. When people, especially, you know, practicing Catholics, that when they experience the need for help, they go and look for it to the mother, and the mother plays a very important role to the point of making the presence of Christ more distant than the nearness of the mother. This is also something that the Pope often says in his homilies. The mother is the closest person that you have. Uh, then she takes you to the son, but she is the one who is nearest. But this actually is an argument that, uh, in, in, you know, breaks the or, or, or questions and undermines the fact the the Christo the fact that Christ is our mediator, mm. our effective mediator. He is so close to us in the spirit that he, there is no one who is closer than Christ Himself in the spirit. And having the mother, Mary, as a, a even closer figure 
uh, undermines that uh, prerogatives that needs to be recognized and acknowledged in the person of the reason Christ. Leonardo, I think you're so right. Uh, I remember uh, years ago having um, just a very friendly conversation with uh, an older woman who had been a, a, a Roman Catholic uh, for all her life, practically. Um, though it was it, with this particular conversation, I remember um, she didn't start off that way. And so uh, I asked her, well, what if, if you remember back to the, your, your early years as a, as a young person, what led you to Roman Catholicism? Uh, what what, what uh, appealed to you? And it was this issue. She said, uh, and it wasn't so much theological as it was emotional, uh, and, and maybe even spiritual in that sense, she said, uh, it's Mary. Uh, she said, I just really think, uh, I, I really appreciate how Roman Catholics actually have respect for Mary. And that yeah. was eye-opening uh, because it, it, it told me that, well, if I, if I was going to uh, engage her on this topic, on Mary, um, yes, there's theological arguments to make, but like you said, you, you have to take into consideration that uh, this is deeply emotional for them. And yeah. uh, uh, it, it's, it's not disconnected from uh, Christology. Uh, we, we, we certainly know that when we go back to the Reformation, uh, Luther's understanding of Christ as our, our mediator, as our high priest, uh, directly, uh, that we can go to him directly for the forgiveness of sins. That is radical, and uh, you can see why. But at the same time, uh, we have to understand that this is a, a very um, spiritual, emotional argument for a Roman Catholic as well, and uh, so we have to engage them on that, that playing field uh, yeah. as well. Yeah, Leonardo, as we close here, Maybe it would be uh, just give you the opportunity here for a second to to share uh, and uh, tell our listeners about uh, the Reformanda Initiative. You're the director. Um, maybe you could talk to us about what it's all about, uh, and and specifically what you're doing in Rome. Maybe some of the uh, the advances you've made in recent years. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Uh, a simple consideration: Roman Catholicism is the largest uh, institutionalized form of Christianity that we found uh, in the world. Wherever we go in the world, from north to south, from east to west, from the global south to Europe and America, we encounter Roman Catholicism. And yet, as far as uh, my understanding of the evangelical world. Uh, there has been very little work done in terms of helping theologians, educators, apologists, communicators of the gospel, leaders in the church to equip them in understanding theologically, historically, uh, doctrinally, as well as ethically, practically, equipping them in engaging Roman Catholicism from a, a evangelical point of view. There are loads, different initiatives uh, going, uh, serving the church in many ways, but there was very little done in intentionally helping raising the profile of evangelical theology as it engages Roman Catholicism. So the Reformand Initiative uh, was born out of that awareness and the need to address the issue. It's a global issue, although it takes regional uh, dimensions and shades. It's a theological issue because it involves the deep uh, theological foundations of our own faith. It's a missiological issue because Wherever we go in the world, we find uh, uh, Catholics. Uh, it is a important issue. So we are trying to provide resources. We're trying to provide a platform for evangelical theologians to help one another, to sharpen our views, to equip 
ourselves to be better servants of the gospel in our uh, context where we find uh, the Catholic Church. Um, and uh, we do this by um, organizing the Rome Scholars Network, uh, a week-long seminar uh, which happens at the end of June where we gather 35, 40 scholars from around the world uh, concentrating on evangelical assessment of Roman Catholicism. We do it by providing reports, uh, the Vatican files, uh, articles, uh, evaluations of papal speeches, theological documents and events. We do it by uh, providing resources like videos or participating at conferences, so to raise the awareness of the, the issue. And that's our call. To our listeners, if you are not familiar with Leonardo's ministry, I would encourage you to go online. Uh, you can you can go on to his website and read uh, what he just mentioned a minute ago, these, these Vatican files, uh, very helpful. Uh, I would also encourage you to uh, pick up some of his books. Um, these Christian pocket guides uh, to the papacy and Mary, these are short books that uh, you can take with you uh, wherever you go and just uh, read them in a short amount of time, and uh, you will be surprised just how, how improved uh, your understanding of Roman Catholicism is as a result. I'll mention one other resource. Uh, I am uh, just finished editing, and, and it's now coming out, a book, uh, with Crossway called The Doctrine on Which the Church Stands or Falls. And Leonardo has a chapter in there where he looks at the history of Roman Catholicism. And it's a very helpful chapter. It will orient you as to where the Roman Catholic Church has been and where it's going in the, fu in the future. Leonardo, it's been great to have you on the Credo Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and helping us understand Roman Catholicism better. Thank you, Matt. It was a great privilege for me to speak with you. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation a conversation where doctrine matters.